Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Ministry of Our Lord, with a message that's entitled, The Rich and the Kingdom of Heaven. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 30, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There are in Scripture a number of very troubling passages when it comes to riches. Now, before I go there, let me suggest that the rich became rich through a number of means. Some are born into wealth. I mean, some have it thrust on them rather surprisingly. They just happen to be in the right place at the right time. I know, I know many of us might be saying, wow, I wish that would happen to me. You know, there are others who became rich as entrepreneurs and some as inventors of something that greatly benefits others. Some become rich because they're brilliant investors. You know, I once met a man who told me he headed a medical research team that developed a drug that had saved many thousands of lives. And I asked him how, now looking back at his career, how he felt about being the man who was responsible for so many lives. And he answered, of course it's gratifying, but on the other hand, I don't feel benevolent. They paid me exceedingly well. He had become very wealthy and was enjoying the benefits of that. But then, as we know, there are some who become rich because they've taken advantage of others and they've used their superior intellect or superior power to vanquish their opponents. And still others became rich through illegal means, drugs, smuggling, things like that. The means of becoming rich are as varied as there are rich people. And it's important to note this. The way in which one becomes rich often will have a great impact on how one uses the wealth. But, and this also needs to be said, no matter how you became rich, if you are one of the rich, the very fact that you are rich presents you with a very great peril to your soul. See, I'm not saying, and shouldn't be misunderstood to be saying, that being rich means that your soul has become lost. But I also want to be clear. Being rich presents your soul with exceedingly great dangers, so it's very possible and likely that riches can drag you into a Christless eternity. Riches are dangerous. Consider 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I know, I know, many will say that it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that's evil. But how can a person work to become rich without loving money? If you don't love money, why in the world would you accumulate it? But there are other passages. James 5 verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And then the passage goes on to speak about people that have been taken advantage of by the rich, wages withheld, fraud committed, the people who are unable to resist them because of the desire in the rich for luxury and self-indulgence. Clearly, these speak of the sins of the rich, but it needs to be said, look, there are all manner of people who are rich but have not become that way in abusing others. James is speaking about a certain kind of rich person, not to all rich people. But again, and this is the point that I'm making, riches do present those who are rich 
with a unique series of temptations that must be identified as unique to the rich and that must be overtly resisted. Now, in our study of Matthew, we've just witnessed Jesus telling the rich young ruler to go and sell all his possessions and give to the poor and then to come and follow him. The thought of parting with his riches was so disturbing that even though he desperately wanted eternal life, he wanted riches more. And that's the point of the story. There are all manner of people who may deny it, but they'd rather have riches than eternal life. Now, this discussion with the rich man leads Jesus to talk this matter over with his disciples. And since Matthew is recording this discussion for us, let's listen in as they talk. I'm reading Matthew 19, 23 to 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Before we get any further, I wish to make several observations. First, I have, now on several occasions, heard people say, you know, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle in which camels had to get on their knees to get through. Uh, What Jesus means is that you have to get on your knees for a rich person to get into heaven. And the implication is that it's no different for a rich man than for a poor man. Now, I don't think there was ever such a gate, but even if there was, it's not what Jesus was talking about. Notice he says, with man this is impossible. See, if he had been talking about a gate in which camels had to stoop down, well, that was possible with man. And you know what Jesus is doing here is he's using a metaphor for an impossible event. On a human level, the salvation of a rich person is impossible. Riches are just such a snare. That's the first point. And I thought because, you know, I had heard about this, about the low gate so often, I I would clarify that matter. Second, please also notice that Jesus never asked all rich people to give up all their wealth. As an example, he never asked Joseph of Arimathea to do so. And what's more, later on, as the apostles were explaining the teachings of Jesus, never did they ask rich people to divest themselves of their riches. You know, one good example of that comes from 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, that is the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so the rich are to learn to be servants, to be overwhelmingly generous, to think it's their calling to make sacrificial giving one of their key areas of ministry. So let's get back to the teaching of Jesus. You know, first we notice he says that only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, your riches are going to create a difficulty that will be an impediment They will create hindrances that will encumber you so that it's very likely that you're going to stumble and therefore forsake eternal life. Stop here and consider the warning. What I find so fascinating in this warning is that most people simply discount this. They tell themselves it's it's going to be that way for others, but it's not going to be that way for me. 
I, unlike others, will be able to handle it. And then if you ask the rich how they're doing with their riches, all of them will say they're handling it well. Look, I'm not saying there are no godly rich people. I I can't overstress that enough. I know godly rich people, but I'm belaboring this point because Jesus did. And then using a form of communication, quite well known in his day, something that has been called rabbinic exaggeration, that is, you overstate something. Let me add, everyone knows what Jesus is doing when he overstates it. Jesus is making a point. It's like when Jesus said you should take the log or, you know, the Douglas fir out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a deliberate exaggeration to make a point. No one ever tried to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's ridiculous. But getting a rich man through the gates of the kingdom of heaven is just as hard as that. Jesus meant to say that the hold of wealth is so powerful in the human soul and the advantages of riches will bewitch you that you won't be able to resist its privileges. It will make you think you're more important than you are. And the values of abasement and humility and repentance and taking the lowest place and thinking of others as more important to yourself, well, that's going to seem like an impossible scenario to you. Of course, the disciples are in shock and they ask, if it's so hard, perhaps then no one can be saved. But Jesus, by using this method of teaching, is not saying that the rich can't be saved. He affirms they can, but it takes an extraordinary work of God. Now, of course, we would have to, at this point, affirm that it is impossible for any of us to be saved by human effort or by human means. You know, in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born of the Spirit or born from above. God had to do it. Nicodemus, the proud Pharisee, couldn't do this thing. And it's that way for all of us. Salvation, I like to say, is God canceling out what we want and giving us what we need. And so in this fashion, we would say, well, then, perhaps the rich man is no better and no worse than the rest of us. Yes, in a sense, that is exactly true. The rich are not more sinful than the poor. But the danger for the rich is that they will always have difficulty admitting just that. This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, we're asking you to join our monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month, become a part of the 1119 Fellowship, and for more information or to sign up today, visit backtothebible.ca fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a new generation. Jesus is not barring the rich from his kingdom. Indeed, his invitation is open to all, and most certainly, he doesn't despise the rich. Rather, he invites the rich in the same way as he invites all of us. Come to me. 
confess your sins, trust in me, let go of all other securities and follow me. There's no different invitation for the rich than for the poor or for the middle class for that matter. Jesus is not perpetuating some form of communism and a declared war on the rich. Jesus is not advocating for persecuting the rich as they did, you know, in the French Revolution when they simply shouted off with their heads. These kind of divides, which are a part of the human story, story of hatred, it's not a part of the gospel. Jesus always recognized his message would be more difficult for some. The sinner who recognized himself as a sinner and in desperate need of grace had a great deal more incentive to run to Jesus than the self-righteous Pharisee. And in the same way, the poor who cried out to God for their daily bread might more quickly confess their insufficiency than the man or woman who had great riches. That's simply a fact. You know, in most places around the world, it's the poor who come to Christ first. The rich, if they do, follow later. And just perhaps that is what Christ intended. He would humble the rich and make them servants of the poor. And why would he do that? Because he loved them. I think it's a good word to all the rich. Become servants of the poor. And a good word to the poor. Don't despise the rich. Bless them. It's what Christ wants of you. And still, this teaching about the rich did cause the disciples to be confused. And so, from this dialogue about the rich, the disciples want now to talk about their own salvation. You know, if it's so hard for the rich, if possessions and pride and unwillingness to accept the road to humility is so difficult, well, what about any of us? Matthew 19, 27 to 30. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You know, Peter, who in this case seems to be speaking for the twelve, says, look, haven't we done what the rich young ruler was unwilling to do? And you have to think back to passages like, you know, Matthew 4, 18 to 22. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. You might remember Matthew 8, 19 to 20, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In in other words, you better think about this. See, in a real sense, the issue with the rich young ruler was no different than the very real encounters that Jesus had with many others. But Peter is feeling ill at ease at this moment. He's probably feeling ill at ease because Jesus had just said, with man it's impossible. You know, perhaps Peter is thinking that he's done everything humanly possible in order to be saved. And perhaps he's now thinking that he's been overestimating his ability. Perhaps it's just impossible to be saved. And Jesus' answer is intended to reassure Peter, and for that matter, we who are reading this text so many years later should think that this is meant to reassure us as well. 
I think that for anyone to leave all that they have and follow Jesus, it's not because of their effort. It's because the Father has enabled them to do just that. What caused you to abandon all for Christ? With man, it was impossible, but not with God. Now, let's pay close attention what Jesus said next. He says, in the new world, that is, in the world that's yet to come, or in the world that will yet emerge, when this old death-riddled world gasps its last, and when the new one emerges, a world without sin and death and any sorrow, when that world emerges, says Jesus, I'm going to sit on my glorious throne. You see, Jesus is affirming that he is the long-expected Messiah, and he is destined to rule the new earth. Yeah, when that time arrives, for it most surely will arrive, Jesus says, you, my disciples, the 12, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Two things here. First, in the case of Judas, he would not be numbered among the 12, but the number 12 would still remain. And second, Jesus clearly intends for his 12 to sit on 12 thrones surrounding him, and they would be given a key role in judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's a great deal of discussion about this, you know, whether the 12 tribes of Israel is a reference to natural Israel or whether it's a reference to restored Israel in the last days. I mean, what Paul speaks about in Romans 11:26. You know, for my part, I think it is a reference to restored Israel and of the unique role that the 12 will play in the final establishment of the kingdom of God in the, in the new world. As fascinating as that discussion is, Jesus is making a greater point. Don't put emphasis on what you've given up. So you left your dilapidated old fishing boats behind, have you? Or you, Matthew, so you left your tax-collecting business and walked away, have you? Or you, Simon the Zealot, you gave up on the idea of revolution along with your fellow zealots, and you cast in your future with me. Do any of you think that you've made a sacrifice? Imagine you're living in a small old house. A major company comes along and wants to buy your property and build a resort. And in response, they so overpay you for your property that you now live in a stupendous mansion. Would you spend the rest of your life commiserating about that old house that you gave up? See, in the same way, if you left your boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and are invited to rule with Christ in the world to come, when your fishing boat burns along with everything else in this old world, don't you ever put an emphasis on what you've given up. Now, we might think that's a great deal for the apostles. And to be truthful, the apostles do play a unique role, both in the authority over the church and in the world to come. But according to verse 29, Jesus speaks to all his followers now everyone who would leave everything and follow him. He says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. No matter what you give up for the gospel, it will in just a little while now seem like nothing. By the way, on a personal note, you know, this was the very scripture verse that caused me to give up the inheritance of the family farm and to go into ministry. I just believed this promise. Now, I know when we read a text like this, there are some of us who are going to complain, well, I guess I never had to give anything up for Christ. You know, I came to Christ when I was, let's say, nine. I was encouraged by my parents in my church, and, and I've excelled since then. How am I like the person who, you know, came to Christ in the nation of Iran and then suffered his children being removed from his home? 
his business closed down and then being put into jail. Yeah, but if you're thinking that, perhaps you're forgetting the story of the rich young ruler and the difficulty of the rich in entering into the kingdom of heaven. It's not just that Christ might call us to sacrifice all but once. You see, faith in Jesus is a call to surrender everything to him constantly. It's always a call to be generous with our resources, always. It's always a call to humility and to forsake all attitudes of pride. It's a call to lay down our pride and always to serve others. It's always a call to live a life of service rather than a life of claiming our own rights. And should Christ demand all our possessions, well, we should be as the great Christian was who, when he received news that his house had just burned down, responded by saying, it was never my house, it was Christ's. And in the same way, Christ wants us to abandon our possessions, remembering they are his possessions. Now, let's go to verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Christians say, I'm not banking on this world. I'm banking on eternity. And for that reason, I'm not banking on making a name for myself in this world. For the sake of the promises of God, I gladly let go of this present age. That's a word to the rich. Let go. Abandon it. That's a word for every follower of Jesus. Trust in him. Believe that his cross is sufficient to pay for your sins and believe that his promises of eternal life are not only true and guaranteed, but believe also that in order to obtain them, you renounce your claim on this world. And the rich young ruler, I couldn't do that. And you, you'll have to decide. With man, this is impossible. But God can so free your heart that you'll abandon all for the kingdom of God. John, thanks for your message. You know, I'm reflecting on a conversation I had with a brother in Christ recently who, who shared how current events have so impacted and depleted him financially, and you could sense such a deep discouragement. You know, what would you maybe do to challenge or encourage my brother? Well, the first thing would be to, you know, maybe spend more time in the Word of God than in current events. I would always say that that will orient us. Uh, the second is, um, you know, the, the reality of riches. Um, we should always say of every single individual that your life does not consist in the abundance of your riches. Neither does your enjoyment in this life. Neither does your hope for eternity. So take that out of the equation, and soon we begin to see things rightly. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Ministry of Our Lord, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're excited at Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt to announce a national virtual ministry event this September 27th called The Gathering. Join us in celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching its truth to a new generation. So we invite you to join us on Facebook Live September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, right across the nation with special guest Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced. Join us for music, Bible teaching, laughter, ministry news, and more. Find out more at backtothebible.ca slash events. Visit the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Join us Sunday, September 27th for The Gathering.